You're listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. This is part two on brain death, and I ended part one acknowledging that when diagnosing brain death, you need to have the following criteria met. First, exclude reversible causes like drug overdose and hypothermia. Second, there should always be an absence of all cerebral functions. And third, there also shouldn't be any brainstem functions, including spontaneous respirations. And it's utilizing the clinical exam that is the key to declaring brain death. Some are saying that a single clinical examination should be adequate to determine brain death. And if that exam is done correctly, not a single case in the literature has proven to recover brain function based on that detailed exam. Just one good detailed exam. A single exam, and some are arguing that we do not need to follow up with other exams. However, this very detailed neurologic exam can take up to an hour to perform. Therefore, one wonders if most doctors will still prefer to rely on technology given the time constraints of practice these days. And, of course, confirmatory testing with imaging relieves our own fears in regards to both clinical competence and legal issues. I've yet to see brain death declared totally on the basis of exam, but it is happening in some prominent institutions like the Mayo Clinic. And at the Mayo Clinic, there is a Dr. Vadix who uh, the name is spelled W-I-J-D-I-C-K-S. And Dr. Vadix explained the reasoning in his article titled, The Case Against Confirmatory Testing for Determining Brain Death in Adults, which was published July 6, 2010 in the journal Neurology, where he states, A comprehensive clinical examination, when performed by skilled examiners, should have perfect diagnostic accuracy. And I am sure at places like the Mayo Clinic, this observation might be correct. And it is known that Dr. Vadix is undoubtedly one, if not the foremost expert in the field of brain death, having solely authored the New England Journal of Medicine review of the topic in 2001 and the lead author of the actual 2010 guidelines for that matter. The problem, of course, is that not everybody is as comprehensive at utilizing their clinical skills for determining brain death as a neurologist at a top hospital. Not all of us have trained under the top neurology experts. In fact, quoting from page 733 from the September 2002 Neurosurgery Journal, the authors from the University of South Carolina state, Our study, although limited to a single institution, demonstrates poor compliance with accepted brain death guidelines. So my own thinking is, if you think that it's even a possibility your hospital or your own clinical exam skills may not be perfect, utilizing confirmatory testing probably should be a consideration if there is any question. However, it is recognized that the importance of a good clinical exam can't be overstated in all brain death situations. It's just that certain conditions, such as locked-in syndrome and drug overdoses, 
can mimic brain death if a very careful exam isn't undertaken. In regards to the issue of using a single clinical exam instead of repeat exams, I would like to back up that point by quoting the conclusion of an article titled, Second Brain Death Examination May Negatively Affect Organ Donation, from the January 11, 2011 journal succinctly titled, Neurology, a single brain death examination to determine brain death for patients older than one year should suffice. In practice, observation time to a second neurologic examination was three times longer than the proposed guideline and associated with substantial intensive care unit costs and loss of viable organs. So important points to take home from this. The entire clinical exam for brain death, while essential, may be a bit bland to discuss at full length in this podcast. At a very minimum, you want to make sure that the following are absent. Responsiveness, such as opening of eyes to pain and pupillary response to lice. Facial muscle movement to pain or any grimacing to pain should not be present. Corneal reflexes should be absent. No gag reflex present when suctioning or in response to the endotracheal tube. And there should be no breathing drive, which will be discussed further in a few moments when I get to the part about apnea testing. But an important point is that you don't do apnea testing until you fulfilled the exam criteria first. Now, how often do doctors mess up when diagnosing brain death? We need to have unfailing accuracy with brain death, and we must also be sure that brain death is an irreversible condition every single time, and it appears that is indeed the case. Those patients in the newspapers or your hospital that wake up out of a coma after a period of time were not diagnosed as brain dead. They were diagnosed as being in a coma or a vegetative state. Those scenarios are very different from brain death. And even though the public doesn't always understand this, we need to be clear with that point when discussing those issues that they just aren't the same clinical entity. There has not been a single peer-reviewed published case of a person recovering from brain death when the guidelines have been adhered to. Apparently, there are the rare cases of screw-ups and misdiagnosis when the guidelines have not been adhered to. Some of those cases have been fulminant Guillain-Barre and drug toxicity. But if we follow the guidelines, we hope the error rate would be zero. We often use technology to help us make the diagnosis of brain death. In case you don't want to rely solely on exam, and probably most of us don't just rely on exam at this moment in time, most of us seem to be using technology, ancillary testing may be particularly helpful if the apnea test cannot be completed. And depending on the source you read, that may happen up to a quarter of the time with the apnea test, particularly if the pre-oxygenation was not adequate. The basic thing you are looking for in ancillary imaging is the absence of blood flow because no blood supply means you got a dead brain. So, 
Four vessel cerebral angiography is one way to do that, but there are others like CT angiography and MRA. Bedside transcranial Doppler is used by some since it is non-invasive and you don't need to go down to a radiology department, but requires expertise. And a study published in 2004 showed it to be very specific, but with only 70% sensitivity. And it should be reinforced that all ancillary tests have some degree of imperfection with false positives and false negatives. If you have a tiny amount of blood flow to the brain on an ancillary test and the apnea test and exam show brain death, you now have contradictory data that really does not preclude clinical brain death. Until recently, many have preferred using a nuclear medicine perfusion test. If the isotope does not show uptake in the brain, it is called the hollow skull phenomenon. One of the problems with using nuclear medicine techniques is the limited after-hour ability to get it done. At my hospital, we simply don't have after-hours technicians for isotope preparation, and only a very few of our radiologists read nuclear studies. Several weekends, none of those radiologists that read nuclear studies are on call, so we can only get preliminary readings. Now, there are studies starting to be published about the comparison of different ancillary techniques. A small but an interesting study of 25 patients was in the Journal of Trauma, published in March 2010. It compared CT angiography with nuclear medicine perfusion scan. As expected, the CTA was a faster test, giving more timely closure for families, among other benefits. And in this small study, it seemed to be as good as nuclear medicine perfusion scanning, and the authors are apparently enrolling patients to do a larger study at this time. EEG is the ancillary test that obviously doesn't measure blood flow. Something to keep in mind regarding EEGs is there is potential for artifact from surrounding machines, particularly in the ICU. You can therefore get a false positive. Another thing to keep in mind is EEG doesn't test potentials from subcortical structures like the brainstem, so you still must examine for brainstem activity. We just can't get away from that clinical exam, can we? Now, here is a modern times practical question that I just ran into a few weeks ago. Can you determine brain death in someone getting therapeutic hypothermia after cardiac arrest? No, at least not at this point in time. Maybe someday we will have validated data for accurate brain death diagnosis in that situation. So when can we say a patient is brain dead after rewarming the patient? We aren't sure. Therapeutic hypothermia complicates the issue of brain death. There will probably be better information about this specific issue soon. I want to acknowledge something I have observed myself in dead people. I have actually only seen this in a small number of patients with cardiac death soon after I declare them dead even while asystole is still on the monitor, because I always look when I see this, and that is body movements after death. 
This also causes concern and controversy, as one might imagine, when a nurse or a family member sees this in a brain-dead body. I will simply read a rather lengthy but important paragraph from the April 19, 2001 New England Journal of Medicine. The most controversial issue related to the determination of brain death is the occurrence of clinical signs that suggest some retention of brain function. Even in the absence of motor responses, spontaneous body movements may be observed during the apnea test while the body is being prepared for transport at the time of an abdominal incision for the retrieval of organs or in synchrony with respirations produced by the mechanical ventilator. These body movements are generated by the spine, and the evidence of brain death in such cases comes from a consistent clinical documentation of brain death and confirmation by isoelectric electroencephalography or cerebral angiography. These slow body movements may even include a brief attempt of the body to flex at the waist, making it seem to rise. The arms may be raised independently or together. Forced flexion of the neck or rotation of the body may initiate these movements. Legs seldom move spontaneously, although in two patients, stepping movements were noted just before brain death. So that's the end of the quote, but to elaborate on that point, which is often creepy to a lot of people when we see people move when they're dead, um, some note that these spontaneous movement reflexes are triggered by hypoxia, such as during an apnea test or during final removal of a ventilator. So it's important that we warn families about this before stopping or holding mechanical ventilation. The apnea test to prove brain death of the medulla requires some discussion. When there is damage to the medulla, an arterial PCO2 of 50 should stimulate breathing. The apnea test criteria says we should raise the PCO2 to 60, and if that high of a carbon dioxide tension hasn't triggered breathing, the medulla has died. As long as we remember the caveat that other reversible causes like drugs must first be excluded. And a very important point is to disconnect the ventilator when testing for apnea. New models of ventilators may sense small changes in transpleural pressure, even from a beating heart or a chest tube, and that can trigger a breath. And since a breathing patient is not brain dead, the false positive misinterpretation of technology can misguide us into thinking someone has brain function. The guidelines for brain death printed June 8, 2010 in the journal Neurology are free online. You can get the entire article free. And I will say that I find it very annoying that many medical guidelines are not free online and what a stupid thing that is. We want doctors to have easy access to the best information. And if the guidelines aren't easily available, why have them? What is even extra cool about the free online article from Neurology and the guidelines uh, that they printed in 2010 is that the last page actually has a checklist 
you can print to make sure you did the appropriate exam and testing. Since we want to interpret stuff like an apnea test as perfectly as possible, I will share the guidance on this procedure straight from the guidelines. Here are most of the recommendations for apnea testing from the guidelines. The first important thing is the prerequisites that you need normal tension, normothermia, euvolemia, eucapnea, where the PaCO2 is between 35 to 45, so a PCO2 of about 40 is what you need, and the absence of hypoxia, and no prior evidence of CO2 retention, such as from COPD and severe obesity. Now, the actual procedure of doing apnea testing is you first want to adjust vasopressors if needed to get a systolic blood pressure of 100 or more. And then you want to pre-oxygenate for at least 10 minutes with 100% oxygen to a PO2 of more than 200. Reduce ventilation frequency to 10 breaths per minute to eucapnea. Reduce positive and expiratory pressure, that you know as PEEP, to 5 centimeters of H2O. Oxygen desaturation with decreasing PEEP may suggest difficulty with apnea testing. If pulse oximetry oxygen saturation remains greater than 95%, obtain a baseline blood gas, and then you disconnect the patient from the ventilator. You preserve oxygenation by placing a catheter through the endotracheal tube and close to the level of the carina, and you deliver 100% oxygen at 6 liters a minute. Look closely for respiratory movements for about 8 to 10 minutes. This is a visual observation, standing at the bedside. Respiration is defined as abdominal or chest excursions and may include even a brief gasp. Abort if systolic pressure decreases to below 90. Abort if oxygen saturation measured by pulse oximetry is less than 85% for more than 30 seconds. And then you can retry the procedure with a T-piece or CPAP uh, set at 10 along with 100% oxygen at 12 liters a minute. If no respiratory drive is observed, repeat the blood gas after approximately eight minutes. If the respiratory movements are still absent and arterial PCO2 is more than 60, the apnea test is positive, meaning you've supported the clinical diagnosis of brain death. If the test is inconclusive, but the patient is hemodynamically stable during the procedure, it may be repeated for a longer period of time, sometimes 10 to 15 minutes, after the patient is again adequately pre-oxygenated. So that's how you do apnea testing at this point in time, and again, you can print that out free online from the guidelines itself. Moving on, I found a couple tips in pearls from the 2009 9th edition of Adams and Victor's Principles of Neurology in which they explain on page 345 that most, but not all, brain-dead patients have diabetes insipidus. 
Also, there is an absence of tachycardic response to atropine. This happens because of the loss of innervation of the heart by medullary vagal neurons. And I guess there are some people that are injecting atropine, and if there's tachycardia, they're saying the patient is not brain dead. Now I'm going to end with some final thoughts that I really must say before ending this lecture. Transplant surgery propelled us further into the age of Lazarus, in a sense. The very sick can have a miraculous recovery with a successful transplant. But in order for that resurrection to occur, someone has to be willing to give a tremendous gift at the worst possible moment. We don't tend to transplant the organs of those with chronic afflictions. And likewise, we don't tend to transplant patients that die of most serious acute illnesses like sepsis, although that rule isn't 100%. So it still may be worth talking with the transplant team before making that decision. Also, certain viruses like hepatitis C are not contraindications to donation. That all being said, we do know it's the otherwise healthy that had a sudden, tragic event like a trauma to the head that are the ideal donors. Often, that is even a child and a parent needs to make the decision under extraordinary grief and stress. My father was one of the lucky ones who received a kidney transplant and kept working as a productive member of society. He has been remarkably healthy, with less than a dozen days hospitalized since his transplant over two decades ago. As a hospitalist, we often get jaded by seeing the severely ill, but some do make remarkable recoveries when a true cure like transplantation is available. The South African physician who did the first successful human heart transplant, Christian Barnard, said, It is infinitely better to transplant a heart than to bury it to be devoured by worms, an opinion I agree with. And as a side note, Dr. Bernard was also an advocate and author of a book on euthanasia and assisted suicide. But when healing was possible, he definitely proved himself to be an advocate for aggressive care by birthing the start of human heart transplant surgery. The point being that transplant surgery can resurrect a person. Thank you to all those families who have had a relative with brain death who in the face of unimaginable tragedy went on to give the gift of life. You are, in no uncertain terms, a hero.